that sounds ludicrous. You know, people listening to this right now are saying, well, that, that violates every single basic thing I know about the Bill of Rights and America and about the Constitution. How could this, in what universe could this possibly be acceptable? There is an answer. The universe in which it's acceptable is the universe of pirates. That is Vikrant Reddy. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is criminal justice reform. Specifically, we're going to be talking about civil asset forfeiture. Joining me on today's podcast, Vikrant Reddy, Tyler Koteski, and Greg Glaude. But before we get into the podcast itself, I want to thank everyone who has taken the time to review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it's Stitcher or iTunes or, or or whatever, thanks for taking the time to do that. And if you haven't taken the time to do that yet, I'd encourage you now. Go ahead and pause the podcast, knock one of those reviews out, come back to us. Now, civil asset forfeiture is one of those things where if you haven't heard of it, man, you really need to. When I first heard about this, I couldn't believe what we were talking about. And as you heard at the beginning uh, from Vikrant introducing it, it sounds like something wildly outside what we would think is constitutional. If you don't know that much about it, I'm sure you'll find this interesting. If you do know about it, there's a lot of stuff in here that I learned also, and I think everyone's going to get a lot out of it. So let's just get right to it. Well, yeah, this is this is a topic that actually I had someone reach out to me and say, are you planning on doing anything on civil asset forfeiture? And I said, we can. When do you want it? And they said, yesterday. <laughs> so I said, well, let's let's get the band back together and let's talk about civil asset forfeiture. So let's start first with just defining what it is. And I'm, I'm not going to I don't know which of you is best to go first, but that's that's my first question is what is civil asset forfeiture. What are we talking about here? Well, I'm happy to lead us off and I'll simply say that civil asset forfeiture is a process whereby law enforcement can look at your stuff, make an assumption that it was probably involved in a crime and just take it for themselves. And that sounds ludicrous. You know, people listening to this right now are saying, well, that that violates every single basic thing I know about the Bill of Rights and America and about the Constitution. How could this, in what universe could this possibly be acceptable? There is an answer. The universe in which it's acceptable is the universe of pirates. And it sounds like I'm being (laughs) silly there. But I really mean that because you kind of think through the way piracy tended to happen and you could understand why a uh, a, a legal scheme like this makes sense. So you've got a band of pirates, they've stolen cargo, and they're out there on the open seas, and they sense that law enforcement is catching up to them. And they've got to make a quick getaway. So they leave the cargo behind, and they get the heck out of there. So now you've got the government stumbling upon these ships just full of goods that they can't really trace back to anywhere. 
But it's reasonable to assume that the reason they're just floating out there on the open seas without any kind of an owner is because they were involved in criminal activity. And it makes perfect sense for the government to say, well, I guess we'll just take this stuff. And in the world of piracy, that makes sense. You've developed a doctrine now where law enforcement authorities can assume some property was probably involved in criminal activity and just seize it. Again, in the world of piracy, that makes sense. Where it stops making sense is when you get to the year 2020, and you're in the United States, and somebody is driving down the highway in their car, law enforcement pulls you over and says, I'm making the assumption that this car was perhaps purchased with illegal drug money, and I'm going to take it for myself. That kind of thing happens all too often, and that's the legal theory that it came from, but you can kind of see where a legal theory that makes sense in one context spirals out of control over time and becomes completely bizarre and, frankly, violates really basic property rights. Hey, Greg, help me understand where this all came from, because this 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 seems to be something – I mean, I've, I've been reading about it for maybe the past – I don't know, 10 years or so, but you don't read a lot about this back in the 1800s and maybe you do. I, I, I don't. Those are not the books that I'm reading, but uh, I guess I'm, I'm curious, where did this all start and how did we get get the idea that this would be the appropriate thing for police to be doing? Well, I'll, I'll jump ahead a, a couple uh, uh, probably centuries here from where Vercroft started and, and I'll get into kind of the mid 1980s. Uh, to late 80s. Uh, so you started to see this type of tough on crime rhetoric uh, begin to come out. This is where we started to see some of the increasing and in mandatory minimum penalties uh, at the federal and then the, you know, the states kind of follow suit. And similar things happen with uh, civil asset forfeiture. Kind of the, the Fed saw this as another tool to combat uh, the war on drugs that, you know, we're going to remove the fruits of the criminal enterprises labor or the things that allow them to uh, carry out their criminal enterprises. So you're talking about cash, you're talking about, you know, property, you're talking about cars that were able to do the, the drug running. So the fruits and then also the accessories to allow for that. And they saw that this was going to be going after kingpins. This is going to be, you know, how you really start to devalue uh, and start to dismantle criminal drug enterprises. You take their property and their cash and the incentives to get into this, you're going to dismantle, um, you know, the, the actual enterprise. But what we've seen throughout the years is this type of, you know, no, noble um, type of craft to take down pink pins and their money and these millions of dollars and these huge drug busts and all these things has turned into pulling someone over, smelling marijuana and removing thousand dollar cash from someone's car or their car themselves or their house. Um, and so you're not going after kingpins. You're not going after these individuals that we really want to see at the top. Really, what you're getting at is property owners getting hassled for low level amounts of money or property where they can't defend that in court. And so I know uh, South Carolina just recently had a, a wonderful study done by the Greenville News, um, you know, outlet out there. Uh, they looked at all forfeitures from 2014 to 2016. More than half of those were for less than a thousand dollars. So this whole novel idea of going after major enterprises and drug organizations and kingpins and you're really going to take these down has really turned into local law enforcement pulling people over, utilizing these uh, laws and procedures to really shake down individuals at the lowest rungs of, of the criminal spectrum 
if it's criminal at all. And then what happens is most of these go into default because who's going to hire an attorney to try to challenge a $500 forfeiture when the attorney yourself is going to cost $5,000? Now, you have public interest firms like Institute of Justice uh, that has done a lot of work in here, but those cases are few and far between. And so most of these are for a little amount of money, a little bit out of property, and just going to default because it's not worth the individual trying to challenge it in court. And so what started out as a novel idea has really turned and spiraled in to an overbearing government depriving individuals of their property without necessary due process. Tyler, how did how did that happen? How did it spiral out of control? Because like Greg said, we have we have a, a law that's going in place. There's what would seem to be appropriate intent here. We're going to take the means of of breaking the law away from kingpins. We 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 have police officers out there who are serving and protecting. They're out there to to you know, uphold the law. And somehow we've taken this law and really warped it into something that's really quite harmful. We talked a lot about perverse incentives. Perhaps you could talk about the perverse incentives that went into this corruption and how this all went from a good idea to what we have today. That's a, that's a great question, Dwayne. And I, I really do think the incentives are key. You know, we obviously talk about that in MBM, how incentives matter. And I think this really goes to show that Regardless of the, the good intentions to uh, reduce crime that law enforcement might have, when you have a tactic like civil asset forfeiture that can become a source of not only uh, arrests, but also, you know, or, or maybe uh, other investigations, but a source of revenue uh, that can buttress uh, local departments' budgets to maybe buy more equipment. Um, and, and not have to rely on cities and states for revenue, that's a very powerful incentive to ship resources that might otherwise be going to solve more serious property crimes or violent crimes to drug enforcement, um, which you know might be a priority for some communities, but it's certainly artificially more of a priority than it would be when there's those uh, money strings attached to it. You know, and one of my... One of my favorite exercises is to look at, um, say, the, the blue book amounts for what you could expect a, a court appearance fee to look like in, you know, wherever you live and see, you know, all the kinds of cars you could theoretically be uh, selling for that amount. And that kind of goes to show you, all right, here's an example of someone who could get, uh, you know, busted, maybe driving a a 10-year-old, 15-year-old Civic or something like that, where it's a perfectly functional car, but just because you have, uh, you know, your rent money all in cash in the glove box, um, and for whatever reason, the police conduct a search, they might think that's drug money, but it doesn't make sense as discussed for you to go to court to contest that. So when, when there's that powerful revenue incentive in place, it kind of distorts what the law enforcement priorities uh, should be. And naturally, when uh, folks are less likely to contest those smaller seizures, you see why um, those become more common. And just for everyone listening, uh, MBM, market-based management, uh, for those who might not know what, what Tyler meant. But Vikram, let, let, me, let me go back again and talk about how this all f- functioned when it started 
because I know there was some sort of, of split between the federal government got some and the states or maybe the local. How did, how, did, how did it work when it first started and what changes were made and how does it function today? Well, the key change comes in 1984, and Greg mentioned that this was really kind of the height of the American drug war. It was the height of the crack epidemic in the country, and there were these perfectly reasonable concerns about how you had to do something to get the drug situation under control. But um, what began as a uh, perhaps reasonable idea uh, involved all the wrong incentives and is metastasized out of control. So the key decision that was made in 1984 was to let law enforcement keep a certain portion of what they could find. Uh, you've been asking a, a lot uh, of us, Dwayne, to talk about incentives, and it's the key to just think for a minute about what incentives exist for law enforcement when they're allowed to keep whatever they seize. Here's a good way to think about this. Um, on what side of a highway are, trop, are stops by the police most frequent? You would think the answer is, I don't know, it should be random. It's probably 50-50, you know, whether you're driving northbound, southbound, eastbound, westbound, why should that matter? Well, there was a study done on uh, I-40 in Tennessee. A lot of Tennesseans probably know I-40, and they know that if you're driving westbound on I-40, you're headed towards Mexico. If you're driving eastbound, you're headed uh, away from Mexico. Interestingly, there are 10 times as many traffic stops on the westbound side of I-40 than there are on the eastbound side. Now, why in the world would that be? My hunch and the hunch of the researchers is that because when you're traveling east out of Mexico, the cars might contain drugs. But when you're traveling west towards Mexico, the cars contain money. So if you stop cars on the westbound side, you're much more likely to get money. And that may be what the police officers are after because they get to keep some portion of that. And, you know, from time to time, that money may go towards uh, important and useful things that police officers need, uh, that a police officer needs, excuse me, things like uniforms, things like weaponry, what have you. But we're all about government accountability in the Stand Together community. And the question becomes, how can uh, you hold law enforcement accountable for the way that the money is being spent? And the simple answer is through the basic process of taxation. The police officers have got to go before the city council and say, look, we need X amount of dollars for these kinds of law enforcement priorities. They can't do an end around uh, around that process and just take money from people out of their cars. So yeah, no, to Pacron's point, and, and I think we have to discuss this, You know, there are these anecdotal stories in, in forfeiture where you hear about you know, there was an old woman in uh, South Carolina, again, I'll bring that up, um, where individuals were dealing drugs outside of her house. It was a highly high crime area. She was an older woman living on her own. She had called the police on these individuals. She had asked them to leave and remove themselves. And the government tried to seize and forfeit her house because there was criminal activity going on there. So you do have these anecdotal stories of police officers really going outside their bounds and really taking advantage of these laws. But a lot of this can't be just placed on um, you know, police officers and law enforcement. A lot of this has to do with government not funding law enforcement as a core government function. 
And so every commission's court that lays out a budget in a city or county knows exactly how much money was brought in from fines and fees and also from civil forfeitures from the year before. And so if a sheriff or someone else comes into the commissioner's court and says, we want to only do forfeitures when there's a criminal conviction attached or something else, they're going to say, well, where are you getting the rest of this money from? Because we're not giving it to you because we have what you got last year and Good luck trying to get the the rest of that uh, through other means. I, I don't know. You're going to have a you know a, a bull roast or something like that, or you know pass the pass the hat around at the stadium. You know th- these are the types of things. And so this is not just a law enforcement issue. This is a government issue failing to properly fund law enforcement and other core government functions through just the general budget. And so we need to really stop looking at these from an incentive standpoint. And so obviously law enforcement has a big part in this, but it's it's a bigger picture than just uh, on that side. What else goes into this? I mean, is it just that? Has this Is that the only reason this is this is the result we see today? Well, and it's also a, a utilization. It's just another tool in the toolbox if you start looking at prosecutors as well. And so now prosecutors, you know, they have a thousand cases that come in front of their desk almost every day. I mean, they, they really are worked, you know, very hard and have a huge caseload and having another tool in the toolbox to, you know, adjudicate a, a case is going to be very helpful to them. So that's why you saw the proliferation of mandatory minimums. That was another tool in the toolbox to kind of say, Hey, if you go to trial, this is potentially what you're going to get. If you don't, this is what you're going to get. And so now you have another bargaining chip with your property. Hey, maybe we can, you know, drop the charges here or we can lower this here, but we're going to keep your $5,000 or we're going to keep your car. And so it's just another tool in that toolbox as well for prosecutors uh, along that line. And so, you know, this is, again, it's it getting into incentives, you know, allowing for property to be forfeited without a criminal charge or even an arrest, um, you know, is, is something that, you know, we're, we're you know, it's going to come out and, and, and make a problem for prosecutors, law enforcement, everyone else. And it's important to talk about incentives on the side of the individual. Greg mentioned this earlier when he said, you know, you're really unlikely to go through the legal hassle of hiring a lawyer and jumping through all the hoops that are involved to get back a small amount of money. I happen to know this number off the top of my head. I live in Washington, D.C., as Greg does, too, and maybe you do, Tyler. Uh, he, he's nodding his head. So in Washington... Half of the forfeitures or half of the seizures that are eventually forfeited are of amounts that are below $141. Now, speaking for myself, 150 bucks or so is a lot of money. I would like to have that money back. I would be upset if it was taken from me. However, I know that you cannot hire a lawyer in Washington, D.C. for less than about a grand. It's not going to happen. So you do the math. Do I really want to spend $1,000 at least to get back $141? You don't do it. And so uh, Washington, D.C. Police Department and city government is able to accumulate in tiny $140 chunks all of this money. I think we need to really focus in on on the hassle that you're talking about, because from from my perspective, I mean, we we all are dealing with something I've read about called the curse of knowledge. We we know what we're talking about. We've read this and we assume a lot of people also understand what we mean. But when you say a hassle. To get your money back. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking you've done nothing wrong. You've broken no law. You have been a you've not even not only have not been convicted of anything, you've not been charged with anything. So why is it such a hassle to get your property back? Why is it not just 
given back to you. And if it isn't just given back to you, then what's the process to get it back? What does that look like? You know, it can differ from state to state, but there, there are a couple of technical points to make here, but they're important to talk about. Uh, even if you know very little about law, anybody who watches television from time to time knows that the standard for a criminal conviction is beyond a reasonable doubt, right? You got to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So assume for a moment that you uh, are suspected of criminal activity, but the government can't prove that you're involved in that activity beyond a reasonable doubt. They let you go. But you got to get your property back. Does the government have to prove that the property was involved uh, in criminal activity beyond a reasonable doubt? No, it's a different standard. And it varies from state to state, but um, uh, in the state of Kentucky, for example, off the top of my head, it's got to be clear and convincing evidence, not beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, these lawyerly terms are imprecise, but you could argue, for example, that beyond a reasonable doubt means you got to be 90% sure, but clear and convincing evidence means you've only got to be, I don't know, 50, 60% sure, something like that. So as a technical matter, even if you get off because the government can't prove that you did anything wrong, it's much, much harder to prove that uh, that you deserve to have your property back. And it's this really quirky kind of, uh, you know, technical legal doctrine. But this is the way these kind of esoteric legal concepts really affect people's day to day lives. You you deal with all sorts of other technical ways in which it's very difficult to to get your property back. Uh, for example, just as we said a moment ago, the fact that you have to hire a lawyer. Uh, there's the fact that you're essentially in a uh, a civil proceeding to get your property back rather than a criminal proceeding. And people know the difference uh, between civil and criminal just based on things like the O.J. Simpson trial, right? Uh, you couldn't find him guilty criminally, but you could find uh, liable civilly. It's the same kind of thing. They They have a legal action, not against you, but against your property, because that's how you can make it civil rather than criminal. And that's why, on a side note, there are all these funny case names in civil asset forfeiture, you know, things like uh, U.S. versus one nineteen sixty nine Dodge Durango colored green. <laughs> this, is the, this is the way the cases are named, because that allows them to make them civil rather than criminal. And uh, these little technical legal problems are the they're really the root of the hassle. I'll add, I think my favorite case name is United States versus solid gold sculpture in form of a rooster. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And I'll just and I'll just add to to what Vakrant said. You know, you have these cases where, you know, a criminal investigation uh, can take, you know, many years, you know, in, in, in the eyes of the government. And there's a lot of places that don't really have, you know, solid statute of limitations or, you know, certain states will have, you know, within 180 days, you need to file charges against someone if you bring them in or else the thing gets tossed out. Um, in some states, you don't have that. And so in a lot of places, you will try to get your money back, have never been charged with anything, but the government will say there's an ongoing investigation. We have to hold this cash or property until that time. And so I know there's a case in Michigan where there was these individuals uh, they owned a small business. They were putting in cash deposits, you know, each night or each week. And a lot of them were coming under $10,000. And that $10,000 threshold is very important at the federal government because it looks like you're trying to elude reporting requirements that go above $10,000. So if you deposit $10,000, it takes an additional, um, reporting requirement to say where that money's coming from and all these stuff. 
Well, if you're getting revenue at a certain point, it's probably hitting around the same amount each week. And so this individual couple, this business was hitting a little bit under $10,000 routinely. They seized their entire bank account and years and years went on in legal fees and all this stuff to try to get that back to prove that the property was innocent. Um, and so they actually had the burden on themselves to prove that the property that they had was innocent. It wasn't on the government. And the government can just sit there for as long as they want and said, tough cookies, we're, we're holding on to it because there's an investigation going on. And, you know, government runs pretty slow. So these individuals are out of their livelihood for years, and the government has no incentive to give the money back. And that's a huge problem. That flips the entire process of the criminal justice system and the civil justice system in this country on its head. You have to prove your property's innocence and not the other way around. Hey, Dwayne, I want to take a moment to tie everything we're talking about right now to current events, because there's a lot of uh, anger about the criminal justice system. There's a lot of protesting out in the streets. There's a huge national conversation about this. And I think we ought to take a minute to think um, to think of ourselves as being in the shoes of someone who is a victim of civil asset forfeiture. You just had property taken from you. You know that it's just impossible to get it back. It doesn't make a lot of sense financially or otherwise for you to do this. You're at home. You're just talking to your family about this terrible thing that happened to you that day. Word gets around. It's happened to other people in your neighborhood, too. And people just start to feel really resentful towards law enforcement. They don't have trust in these people. They don't think of these people as folks who can help them, uh, as folks that they should go to with tips and information whenever they know about criminal activity that has happened in the neighborhood. Instead, there's just this deep and profound resentment and mistrust because the police officers are not helpers. They're tax collectors, essentially. And there are all sorts of things like this uh, in the criminal justice system that kind of build up. Greg also mentioned fines and fees that are uh, exorbitant and unnecessary. But I think civil asset forfeiture is a key part of all of this. It's not even my observation. This is actually an observation I'm taking from Justice Clarence Thomas. He had it was either a concurrence or a dissent somewhere a few years ago where he um, talked about the fact that he was hoping the Supreme Court would take a look at civil asset forfeiture. And he mentioned some of the reporting on civil asset forfeiture in the media. And he talked about the fact that the sort of person who's more likely to be driving around with cash in their car instead of credit cards, for example, is probably lower income may perhaps be a minority, and it's perfectly understandable to think that these kinds of incidents, as they build up and as they get discussed in these communities, will lead to horrible uh, resentments and a complete deterioration of trust. I think Justice Thomas is, is right if you just pick up the headlines right now. So just let me see if I understand this whole process here, how this works. So I'm here at home and my wife comes up to me and says, Hey, uh, our new, uh, you know, the second stimulus just hit the bank account. And I'm like, we have nine kids and that is a fat lot of money. I'm going to go take that out of the bank and I'm going to drive up to Omaha to Nebraska Furniture Mart. And I'm going to buy that entire home stereo television set that I've been looking at with with all the digital and all that, and it's going to be a lot of money, so I'm just going to take the whole thing. And I head up north on I-29, right? And as per the norm, I'm probably driving 5, 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, and an Iowa State, he pulls me over, just because I drive through Iowa the most of the way there. That Iowa State Patrolman then says, okay, I smell marijuana, get out of the, the car. <clears throat> Not that the car smells like marijuana, but 
that's assertion that that's an assertion that's made. He says, oh, you have six thousand eight, you know, eight thousand dollars on you. Yoink. I'm going to take that. And now we're going to just you're going to forfeit this in order for me to get that back, having done nothing wrong, but maybe speed a little bit. I'm going to have to get a lawyer and then what, sue to have this given back to me. And then that could cost who knows how much. And this happens to people all the time. Is this an accurate assessment of what you're telling me is going on? Yeah, I I can weigh in. I I mean, you wouldn't have to necessarily sue yourself, but you would have to defend your your property and figure you'd have to defend its innocence. The idea that uh, I would have to defend the innocence of property, I find that completely absurd. Am I wrong there? I just hear, is your property innocent? And I'm like, my property. My property's a pen. You know, it, it doesn't have motives. It's a golden rooster. Yeah, it's a yeah, golden it's rooster. Innocent. Last I knew, it was not out committing crimes. It just sits there and looks golden and roostery. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's been about uh, over a dozen states that have changed that burden to flip it on its head. We've seen federal legislation try to do the same at the federal level. But no, you're, you're exactly right. In most states, you have to show that my property is innocent. And that's at a civil case. Uh, where you don't have the same protections um, that you do at a criminal case. You don't have, you know, a right to counsel. You don't have uh, certain evidentiary proceedings. You know, the government's already proved their case by seizing the property. Now it's on you. Um, and it's just, it, it's, it's it's an absolute racket. And, um, you know, it's something that really needs to change. And some states have come around to that, and we're still seeing trouble pushing those legislative reforms in others. But, um, you know, there there's been progress, and there's a long way to go. And as more people hear about this issue. I, I can't remember who said it, but Krant, um, I know you've heard it a cu- bunch of times. You know, there's two different types of opinions on civil asset forfeitures, people that are mad as heck about it, and there's others that don't know about it yet. And so I think it's just much more education on this issue, understanding what it is, getting away from a lot of the, you know, just kind of the legal jargon around it because it's a hyper-complicated issue and just understanding what is going on. If we value property at the same time as life and liberty, how are we allowing the government to deprive it in this manner? Um, it, it's jarring. Um, and you have in certain states, I know in West Virginia this year, uh, we tried to push for a uh, reporting uh, bill just to report on what's going on. If the government's going to take your property, let's let's figure out how what's going on. Is there a criminal charge involved with it? How much money? How much property? That was fought tooth and nail by certain members in government agencies and lawmakers. And you have to start wondering if the government doesn't want to be transparent about this, why? Um, and so that, that, that's something that's, I think, very eye-opening to individuals, not only just the process itself, but just understanding from a data standpoint, that's getting pushed back on in a lot of jurisdictions. So um, it's a huge issue for us at AFP. It's one that we're going to continue to fight for and see it as a, a major priority within our, our uh, point of view. I really like what uh, what Greg said about how this is a, a question of uh, whether or not we value property as much as we value life and liberty. A lot of people will try and frame this as a question of whether or not we have regard and respect for law enforcement. Don't let them do that. This is an issue about property rights. And it's definitely you know not something where if you get that kind of opposition in your state that um, – you know, you pushing for a reform that you are alone at all. You know, I think since about 2014, there have been 35 states and the District of Columbia that have all passed laws in some way or another placing new restrictions or reporting um, on civil asset forfeiture. And, and of the reporting alone, which is kind of that first step of reform, just to see what the problem is, 
you know, what amount those seizures are that we're talking about, whether they're big or small. Um, that's been about 25 states, you know, have done just that since 2014. Um, you know, we can get into the, the various kinds of solutions and, and stuff in a bit, but it just gives a sense there definitely is momentum for this. And as people find out uh, what this, this system is, they definitely increasingly want to change it. So I'm I'm considered innocent until proven guilty, but the golden rooster is assumed guilty as sin straight out of the gate. And I have to prove its innocence. I that it's it's incredible. What about this issue do we need to know that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, we've covered a lot of, a lot of ground, but I'm sh- I'm assuming there's something out there that's important that I haven't mentioned. I think it would be good to to probably just get into what a reform process looks like over the years in states and kind of what you can expect, um, you know, going, looking at your, your, let's just say if you start from a baseline that civil asset forfeiture is, is pretty much enabled and in all circumstances, you have a, a low, uh, low bar of evidence to allow for forfeiture. Maybe something as small as preponderance of evidence. Um, which is effectively just more likely than not. Um, and there's little reporting whatsoever. States can work with federal authorities um, to to transfer seized property to them for forfeiture as well. So if you're just uh, starting from that uh, assumed baseline, the first thing you want to do as a state is pass these reporting requirements that we were talking about. We've got, um, you know, model legislation that, you know, from policy, we often refer to and, and basically the precepts of that are that you need to know about uh, how much the individual seizure amounts are. Are they these $140, you know, small time shakedowns that the current's talking about, or are they $50,000 drug busts? I've, I've uh, you know, been asked this in hearings before directly. And when you have that information that the median seizure amount is peanuts, it is so powerful um, to help make that case to the public. Um, you know, in addition to those seizure amounts, you also want to know where the seizure happened, what side of the highway to Vicarant's point. Um, are they, is it likely that police officers are patrolling one side of the highway that they expect drug money to be flowing in? Um, and then so after, after reporting, uh, you know, there, there are extra things you can do, like increasing the standard of evidence for forfeiture, adding conviction requirements to make sure that someone actually has to be convicted of a crime. And, you know, preferably the person whose property is in question, because you don't just want your spouse or your son borrowing your car to get a DUI and then your car gets taken. That can happen, unfortunately. Um, and then, you know, beyond things like, uh, the extra burden of proof, the conviction requirements, ideally you want to follow the example of places like New Mexico or Nebraska or North Carolina, where they abolish civil asset forfeiture as a process entirely and forfeiture seizures can still take place during investigations. But if law enforcement is going to permanently keep property, it has to do so only in the context of a criminal trial as a consequence of that. None of this United States versus solid gold object in the form of a rooster business. And the only other thing I want to add here too is just even if you you can't quite, you know, get to New Mexico right away, because that often takes, 
you know, momentum and, and incremental reforms over time, building up that, that reporting body of evidence and whatnot. You know, there is one thing to keep in mind as well, which is even if a state passes reforms that improve due process. So for instance, Missouri, uh, you know, pass a conviction requirement. They no longer allow law enforcement to keep the proceeds of forfeitures directly. You know, those are, those are good improvements from before for certain. But despite those strong protections, they still allow, um, participation in what's called the equitable sharing program. And this is where uh, state and local authorities can work with the federal government, uh, and split the proceeds of forfeitures that they, uh, take together, basically. And this isn't to say that we don't support state and local law enforcement cooperating with federal authorities, particularly when you're talking about, you know, trans state or transnational uh, criminal organizations like drug cartels, that can be really important and effective. Um, but that said, if the, uh, through the equitable sharing program, unfortunately, too often allows state and local authorities to circumvent any state level due process protections that get passed by cooperating with the feds. So just because if a Missouri state trooper uh, pulls you over and takes your cash to go buy those TVs, that they might have to convict you of something to actually forfeit it. If they are doing so as part of a federal investigation and then transfer that cash to the feds and then split it with you, um, that's uh, called an adoptive seizure, um, then you're out of luck, regardless of what state laws Missouri has put in place. One thing we could possibly throw in is that uh, civil asset forfeiture, uh, according to the Supreme Court as of two years ago, at a certain point can straight up violate someone's Eighth Amendment rights. Most people know the language in the Eighth Amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. There's also a clause in the Eighth Amendment that prohibits excessive penalties. Uh, there was a case in the Supreme Court called Timms versus Indiana. I won't get into all the details, but the, basically what happened here was that Mr. Timms had a really nice truck. This is a truck worth about 40 grand. And he was transporting drugs, which he should not have been doing. But uh, he was transporting drugs. He got busted. And he lost his truck through civil asset forfeiture. But what's really interesting is that the underlying statute in the state of Indiana said that for the actual drug transporting crime that he was convicted of, the maximum financial penalty that he could be assessed was something like $2,000. I think I've got the amounts more or less correct there. So even though the maximum penalty under law was $2,000, in practice, he lost $40,000 worth of value took that case all the way to the Supreme Court and he won. And the uh, courts throughout the United States right now are trying to get a sense of at what point civil asset forfeiture can begin to violate your Eighth Amendment rights because uh, the penalty is just excessive. But that's an important movement through the courts rather than through the legislatures where we're hopefully starting to chip away a little bit at uh, civil asset forfeiture and, and the way that it violates really fundamental American rights. Big thanks to Tyler Koteski, Greg Glaude, and Vikrant Reddy for taking the time to talk with us about civil asset forfeiture and criminal justice reform. If you have any questions about this priority initiative or any of the other priority initiatives that we've talked about, please feel free to reach out to me at topprioritya at 
www.thepeopleshow.org. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you then.